Hello and welcome to From Russia with News, a weekly news podcast brought to you by the Moscow Times. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Millions of citizens of Russia are united by the Olympic dream. I view the Russians as a far greater challenge that we have. President Putin, uh, he just said it's not Russia. A unique country. Not bad, not bad at all. I'm your host, Jake Cordell, a reporter in our Moscow newsroom. This week on the program, Russia gets tough in its response to coronavirus, issuing a temporary ban on most Chinese citizens entering the country. So you see when uh, it touches geopolitics and strategic competition with the US, I think that most Russians see China as an ally, as a partner. But where it comes to land, water, environmental issues, and now public health, I think there is a big degree of suspicion, mistrust towards China as a state and Chinese as people. Expert on China, Alexander Gabuev of the Carnegie Moscow Center will be on the line to discuss Russia's response to the outbreak and look at how the disease is affecting attitudes towards China. And later, the palace intrigue ramped up this week as President Vladimir Putin fired his longtime aide, Kremlin ideologue and key advisor on Moscow's policy towards Ukraine, Vladislav Surkov. Through the first two presidential terms of Putin's, you know, he was the, the architect, or perhaps more appropriately the playwright and uh, theatre impresario of sovereign democracy, the whole sort of managed political structure that Putin created. We'll speak to Russia expert Mark Galliotti about the significance of his dismissal, what happens next next for Russia and Ukraine, and what it signifies about the current state of the Putin regime. From today, that's Thursday the 20th of January, most Chinese citizens will be temporarily blocked from entering Russia as part of Moscow's latest moves to contain the spread of coronavirus. The ban covers all Chinese citizens travelling to Russia on employment, tourist and student visas. The small number of citizens with business and transit visas will still be allowed entry. The decision, made by Russia's new Prime Minister Mikhail Mishustin, surprised even the Chinese government, with diplomats here in Moscow telling the Commerçant newspaper they were dumbstruck by the announcement. On the line to discuss Russia's latest moves to stop the coronavirus spread is Alexander Kabuev, chair of Russia in the Asia-Pacific program at Carnegie Moscow Center. Hi Alexander, thanks for being on the show today. Hi, thanks for having me. So why has the government decided to take this decision now? I think that there are a couple of reasons, and the major reason is the uncertainty among the Russian decision makers about the future trajectory of the virus, whether Chinese government is really able to contain it, and concerns of what could happen if the virus uh, has been transmitted to Russia and starts spreading, because the Russian decision makers know that they are unable to impose the same restrictions for travel and internal migration the way China's colleagues have done that. And uh, I think that they are very worried in looking into the situation which is happening in Wuhan. Uh, There is not enough transparency, including from the Chinese government. Uh, They never had uh, handed the samples of the virus to the Russian authorities. And uh, although on the official level, the Russian government expresses support and admiration for the efforts of Chinese government to combat the virus, uh, privately, some senior officials I've talked to have expressed reservations and concern that there is just enough risks that are deriving from lack of transparency and information on the Chinese side. So I think that's the major driver. And I think the second driver is that we see some anti-Chinese sentiment on the rise and increasing demands towards the government to deal 
with the situation. Uh, and I think that the Russian government really wants not to play populist, but to answer to those demands of the population and present themselves as the guardians of public health uh, in Russia and fight the coronavirus, including banning Chinese travelers. So this ban does have support amongst the Russian population? I think so. We need detailed uh, polling data, but uh, I think the most recent uh, example of a study that we have seen from a global polling group, uh, Ipsos, shows that Russia is among the nations which favor the most strong restrictive measures, including travel bans. Why why has this anti-Chinese sentiment risen? Is it just in relation to the virus or was it already there before? I think that we see a very steady pattern of uh, as China-Russia relationships get stronger, the trade volume grows, and China becomes one of the major geopolitical partners for Moscow. The overall attitude toward China is improving, and that's registered in the poll done by Levada and in the polling, polling company. Uh, I think that is pretty reliable data. So we see that starting from 2013, 2014, after annexation of Crimea, uh, the support for Chinese or the view that China is a friendly nation is on the rise. Uh, These numbers have tumbled uh, over the recent months, as uh, the poll that Levada has conducted in late January shows. And uh, Levada sociologists attribute this uh, decrease in uh, admiration or friendly feelings toward China to the coronavirus. Uh, what I observe is a pattern where overall the attitude is rather positive, and uh, I don't think that xenophobia is very widespread. But if there is an acute crisis around environment, land, water, or public health for that matter, there is a latent uh, xenophobia that pops up, at least in pockets of the Russian population. We've seen that, for example, in 2018, when Chinese have announced the plan to establish a small factory for bottling water on Lake Baikal. That's a pretty small enterprise. There are a couple of similar enterprises around lakes of, uh, around shores of Lake Baikal, and that never has uh, caused any big troubles or any big resistance from the local population. But since the investor was Chinese, there was a big pressure campaign and big protest campaign on local population and sub-local businesses. So the Russian authorities had to revoke the permit and Chinese finally didn't build that. Uh, Another example is Chinese participation in the Russian forestry industry. So there is a lot of protest going on in Siberia every summer around Chinese cutting down trees. So you see when... Uh, it touches geopolitics and strategic competition with the U.S. I think that most Russians see China as an ally, as a partner. But where it comes to land, water, environmental issues, and now public health, I think there is a big degree of suspicion, mistrust towards China as a state and Chinese as people. Is the Kremlin worried that this suspicion could impact wider trade relations with China? I think that the Kremlin really uh, has contradicting goals with regard to China. Uh, I think at one point it really wants to boost this partnership. It really needs uh, Chinese demand to drive the local economy. It really wants to diversify 
its trade away from European Union, and uh, there is enormous room to take away eggs from basket European Union and put them into basket China. Uh, European Union is over 40% of Russia's external trade. China is about 20% of Russia's external trade now. Both economies have very similar structure, and there is enormous way to arrive at a balanced trade structure where half of your trade goes to east, half of your trade goes to west. And at the same time, Russia and China are in the same boat competing with the United States and uh, fighting against what they see as a unipolar U.S. hegemony in world affairs. At the same time, the Russian government really wants to manage the attitude of its population towards China. And it knows that once this uh, anti-Chinese sentiment pop up, uh, that have deep historic roots and that are probably derived from uh, the years of Sino-Soviet split in the 60s and 70s and the 80s. And they also derive from the growing asymmetry between the two powers, where China is like number one economy, number one in PPP terms, and Russian economy flat is not really growing. So this sense of asymmetry with its former junior partner is pretty acute. Uh, and uh, this is very visible in places like the Russian Far East or Siberia, where there are asymmetries in demographics on both sides of the border. So Russian government is aware of that, and it really tries to manage and not portray itself as selling motherland to Chinese investors or Chinese partners. And will this specific decision put any strain on that diplomatic or political relationship? I think that we see that overall coverage of China is very positive. And I know for a fact that there are restrictions in the Russian state-owned media to cover negatively either Xi Jinping or the Chinese Communist Party. And similar restrictions uh, happen to be in China with coverage of Vladimir Putin. Uh, But then I think whenever there are local crises like the Baikal bottling plant crisis, uh, the Russian government takes the side of like protecting national interests or interests of the national po- of the Russian population and uh, makes decisions that are sometimes discriminatory towards Chinese investors. Thanks. And on the economic impact, I mean, 1.5 million Chinese tourists came to Russia last year, more than from any other country. Obviously, there's going to be a, a short-term hit to that number. Is there any long-term kind of damage to the Russian economy that, that could happen from this? We'll see how long it takes to really combat the virus. I think that most uh, virologists agree that uh, as summer approaches and the temperatures start to go up, uh, the virus will become weaker. We've seen that pattern with SARS 17 years ago. So probably by mid-spring, April, uh, the number of cases will go down significantly and uh, Uh, There is a way that the Chinese government can reopen uh, outbound tourism. However, the big question is whether uh, the new coronavirus will remain an annual feature like like other similar viruses, uh, because it takes about uh, 18 months to develop a vaccine which can go all the clinical tests and will be admitted uh, for, uh, for massive use. Uh, before that, I see that we're definitely going to see decrease in tourism, but tourism is just one section of the Russian economy that will be affected by the virus. I think the major impact will be uh, seen in the commodities industry, particularly in oil. Uh, we've seen that the commodities prices and crude oil prices have gone down 
because of the impact of the virus uh, in January and February. Uh, and then the physical volumes that China importing have gone down significantly. The official estimate for January is minus 20 percent. Uh, I think we're going to see even a, a bigger decrease in use of oil and gasoline in China due to quarantine and all the mobility restrictions imposed by the Chinese government in February and probably March. Thanks very much for a really interesting discussion. Look forward to having you on the show in the future. My pleasure. Vladimir Putin fired his longtime advisor, Vladislav Surkov, this week, the Kremlin's so-called Grey Cardinal, who was, until a few weeks ago, Russia's chief negotiator on the conflict in eastern Ukraine. But then a technologist emerged who went much further, and his ideas would become central to Putin's grip on power. He was called Vladislav Surkov. Surkov came originally from the theatre world, and those who have studied his career say that what he did was take avant-garde ideas from the theatre and bring them into the heart of politics. That was a clip from Adam Curtis's acclaimed documentary Hypernormalization, which brought Surkov international notoriety, crediting him with an almost unique level of influence over Putin himself. Since 2013, he has been responsible for shaping Moscow's hardline policy towards Ukraine. However, during the recent change of government, Putin appointed a new man, Dmitry Kozak, to oversee Moscow's relationship with Kiev. This week, he finally pulled the trigger and officially dismissed Surkov. On the phone to explain a bit about the man behind the reputation and look at whether Surkov leaving the Kremlin will mean anything for Russian-Ukrainian relations, Mark Galiotti, honorary professor at UCL's School of Slavonic and East European Studies and author of We Need to Talk About Putin. Hi Mark, thanks for joining us on the show today. Always a pleasure. So you've just published a column over at the Moscow Times looking at what Surkov's dismissal tells us about the Putin regime today. I want to come to that in a minute, but but first, can you help us demystify Surkov and his reputation? Who is he? What role did he play? Why was he seen as so important? Oh, heavens. The point is, once you start demystifying Surkov, you have to wonder what's what's there. Um Essentially, I mean, he was, you know, in, in a classic trajectory, someone who sort of stumbled into business and from that into politics. But particularly, I mean, the key point is that he became first deputy head of the presidential administration in 1999. In other words, just as, as Putin was, was moving towards the presidency. Um, and through the first two presidential terms of Putin's, you know, he was... The, the architect, or perhaps more appropriately, the playwright and uh, theatre impresario of sovereign democracy, the whole sort of managed political structure that Putin created. Um, he, he maintained his role to an extent during the Medvedev interregnum, but he was regarded as being a little bit too close to Medvedev. And so he was, well, demoted in effect to still a ministerial position in terms of economic development, but nonetheless, you know, he moved out of the presidential administration, out of the charmed circle. And really, from that, it was a sort of a a case of him then trying to drag himself back into power. In 2013, he became, again, a personal advisor to uh, Putin, a presidential aide, and was in 2014, essentially given the the Donbass portfolio implicitly, which was, let's be perfectly honest, not uh, a plum appointment. It was it was a little bit like, frankly, the position of Northern Ireland secretary in the British government back in the time of the Troubles. It was the, the job that you gave someone because they had stood against you as in the prime ministerial ch- challenge or whatever. And it was his chance to try and claw himself back into favour. 
but one that he eventually failed. So when you come down to it, if you really want to summarize Surkov, he is someone who's always been fascinated by power and particularly the, the theatricality of it. And when that was seen as useful for Putin, then he was riding very high. But as soon as he began to become looking like a, a bit of a problem, that, that's when his decline began. He was never one of Putin's true inner circle. So you talk about him being maybe a little bit better at the political theatre uh, than anything else. What kind of tactics did he use? Well, essentially, he was the one who was behind this whole creation of essentially a, a fake democratic structure so that you have opposition parties and politicians and people with what seem to be different platforms. But in practice, they're all reading from a script that they've been given. Um, that really is, I think, at the essence of the, the sort of the, the 2000s era politics before we had this sort of shift back to a rather more um, crassly authoritarian approach. Um, and you know, I, look, I, I don't want to diminish that. I mean, most of politics is about perception. The issue is, you might say, that Surkov himself couldn't deliver more than the theatre. He needed to rely on other people to put some degree of substance behind the imagery. And so in this respect, this is why I write in my piece that in some ways it's more that the Kremlin failed Surkov rather than the other way around. So why has he been dismissed now? Well, I mean, the, the honest answer is, I mean, how do we know? Um, the, the, the general sort of the rumor mill is that it relates to the fact that uh, Dmitry Kozak, who was a sort of general troubleshooter at large, uh, who's been used in the North Caucasus, has now been sort of appointed to be the, the primary figure in, responsible for the Donbass region. And either that meant that Surkov had to go because they, they couldn't be two opposing powers, or as some have suggested, it might mean that, that Surkov himself therefore wanted to step down. Because certainly this very, very terse presidential decree announcing his departure from the position of presidential aide was unusual in the fact that usually one doesn't get decrees. And it hasn't been accompanied with any particular fanfare and flourish saying thanks for your service. So, you know, it certainly implies that, that Putin is not entirely happy with him now. So if we turn a little bit towards policy, does this shift mean anything for how Russia is going to approach the situation in Ukraine going forward? Well, inevitably it does, though. I don't unfortunately think it's going to mean sort of peace is at all imminent. Um, Surkov, I mean, first of all, his style of politics was actually totally unsuited to the Donbass region, where he's dealing with a bunch of violent, thuggish political opportunists. We shouldn't think that the Kremlin just simply controls the, the insurgent pseudo-states of the Donbass no, so neatly. It's a much more complex environment. They have to kind of work with, through, and sometimes against various local politicians. Surkov's style of... Um, smooth metropolitan politics really didn't have much traction. That, that was a, a recurring problem. Secondly, Surkov needed not just a success, but a triumph in order to get back to power. In some ways, I think his rather hawkish politics to a degree, reflect the fact that he couldn't go for some kind of muddy compromise. He needed to be able to present himself as winning a victory. Now, Kozak comes in a very different context. Kozak is not a flashy impresario. He is a practical, hands-on fixer and troubleshooter. The fact that he's there implies two things. One, that the Kremlin has resigned itself to the fact that it might end up being stuck with this I can't hardly call it a frozen conflict, given how violent it is at the moment. This on and off stuck conflict. Um, and Kozak is really there to kind of minimize the political and above all economic costs thereof.
Secondly, though, it looks like Surkov's dismissal was in part, um, whether it was directly a condition for progress in terms of negotiations with President Zelensky in Kiev, or at least just simply it was felt that it would expedite the process. Kozak comes in as a relatively kind of clean skin. He has no real kind of backstory. Um, he can, to an extent, make minor moves towards some kind of rapprochement with Ukraine. But the, the fundamental problem is this. Ukraine is not willing to give Putin a victory. Why should it? Putin does not seem willing or to believe that this conflict is so debilitating, so expensive, that he's willing to give Kiev a victory. And at the moment, therefore, although I hope there's going to be progress, I don't know if I really believe there will be. And beyond Ukraine, and this is the, the subject of your column on the Moscow Times, what does uh, his dismissal tell us about the state of the Putin regime and how power is being used in Russia at the moment? I think it, it suggests that, in fact, that, that there has been a shift away from this easy assumption that with, 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 with smoke and mirrors and a little bit of, of razzle-dazzle, you can keep the Russian people happy without it being also fundamentally tied to good conditions of living. And I think what we've now seen is this kind of retrenchment of the Putin regime to one which is much more managerial and technocratic, that is looking desperately to try and see that there's going to be some progress on these grandiose national projects that Putin has decreed. Not that I think they're going to have a major impact on most people's quality of life, though they will certainly have a lot of impact on those corrupt embezzlers who are involved in, in, in a lot of the delivery. But generally, it, it's this sort of hunkering down. There, there is this sense that basically this is a regime which fears its international situation, but above all fears its domestic situation. It, it worries about what ordinary Russians are thinking, particularly as we move into a kind of potential transition to some kind of not post-Putin, but sort of semi-post-Putin era. Um, and, and therefore, it's, it's a time of you know, grey, key performance indicators driven managerialists of whom Mishustin is, is, is a pretty interesting sort of case. So I, I think what we're going to see is less, less flash, less dazzle, more rather conventional reliance on you know, the great patriotic war narratives about a hostile world encircling Russia and above all an attempt to make ordinary Russians feel that after some years in which they felt their lives have been getting harder, some sense of progress in the right direction. That's really interesting. Thank you very much for joining us today, Mark. Always a pleasure. That's it for this week on From Russia with News. Thanks for tuning in, and don't forget to rate the podcast on iTunes. It'll help other Russia watchers find us. Head over to the Moscow Times website for more on Russia's response to coronavirus, Vladislav Surkov's dismissal, as well as the latest from Russian politics, business, arts, culture, and more. You'll also find details of the Moscow Times crowdfunding campaign there. And if you consume our independent reporting from Russia, please consider throwing your spare change our way. I'm your host, Jake Cordell. Our producer was Piotr Sauer. We look forward to joining you next week with more news from Russia.